welcome to hey great shot this is the great shot podcast brought to you by cracked rackets my name is alex gruskin such an exciting portion of the tennis season when we're in that transition between the grass season and the long summer season and into now the hard court portion of the year obviously a lot of that play i'm spoiled as an american a lot of that in america tonight as we're recording i watched riley opelka knock off john isner seven six in a third set you look at that atlanta tournament i believe there's still six next gen atp players still alive and given that max rothman and i just recorded our 100th great shot podcast episode giving our top 10 seasons of the next gen ATP players in 2019 that result uh, particularly impactful to me it just feels like the, the topic seems more and more relevant as we close out this season but we didn't want to leave you listeners hanging obviously there's a complete another portion of the tour to discuss the WTA side of events uh, what we want to do today give our top 10 next gen WTA seasons up of 2019 we'll talk about the criteria we use to select those seasons obviously our top 10 players our reflections on this group in general throughout the season joining me to do all of that you know him as a regular appearer on our other podcast the mini break he is the co-editor of the website tennis with an accent tennisaccent.com the author of the book novak djokovic making the rough places plain matt zemek hey great shot and welcome to the great shot podcast good to have you well, you, I don't know if you're a hot shot, but you do put, put forth a great shot. So thank you. <laughs> working, I don't have the hair to be a hot shot, but I'm working my way there. Um, look, I, I know, again, uh, you and your team at TennisAccent.com, so much work goes into providing six, seven stories a day throughout Grand Slams. A little bit of a lull now, a little bit of time for reflection. What have you been up to? I'm, you know, Our listeners are dying to know. Well, you know, so a, a lot less content because really everyone needs to decompress. Well, everyone except Fabio Fanini because this is his <laughs> time of year. But, you know, for, for most of us normal people, uh, we do need to decompress. And, of course, uh, Wednesday was Mueller Day. So basically I just stayed the heck off Twitter, certainly in terms of public tweets. So, you know, this was the baby boomer Super Bowl. So just <laughs> let the, let the boomers have their fun. Uh, and then we'll be back at it. And, and you know, certainly as we get into um, Washington week, and that's not a political reference, that's the city open, men and women next week, you know, we get into hard courts, uh, you know, except for Dominic Team, who's going to stay in Kitzbühel. Um, so, you know, as hard courts become a regular part of our lives in August, then the coverage will definitely ramp up and we'll be full tilt, of course, for Canada. So, you know, right, but right now this is a time for most normal human beings in the tennis world uh, to relax a little bit. And we can let those uh, clay quarters have their fun in Hamburg and Latvia and Palermo and other places. So, you know, that's, that's what these weeks are for. Absolutely. And just before we get into today's conversation, for our listeners, again, TennisAccent.com, the uh, opening piece is on the website right now. Will the U.S. Open beat the heat? Obviously, that's a reference uh, to the incredible heat wave that seems to gone throughout the east coast of the United States. Uh, if that heat uh, maintains, sustains itself through the U.S. Open, Obviously, that will be something tennis players have to deal with and could become an instrumental factor in what we see at the U.S. Open. Uh, but just real quick again for our listeners from the outset, what, what do you guys have coming up these next couple of weeks? You know, we'll, we'll definitely have some pieces on, you know, who really needs to make a statement, who, who really faces some pressure 
in the summer hardcourt season. We've at, we've already written a few pieces. Uh, I wrote about Dominic Team. You know, the that at the U.S. Open, Dominic Team is really the man uh, most squarely in the spotlight. You know, obviously the big three are all going to be playing for championships, but Team in many ways uh, faces the the most critical challenge. And then uh, I wrote a piece, really not for the not for. Uh, well, at, at Tens with an accent, I wrote about Alina Svitolina. You know, is is this uh, unexpected Wimbledon run to the semis? Is this going to ignite her season, or is it just going to remain a one-off occurrence, just kind of isolated and not relative to the second half of her season? And then um, the Australian company that sponsored a few recent uh, Tennis with an Accent podcasts, it's called Stats Insider, statsinsider.com.au. I want to shout out our friends there at Stats Insider, especially Nick Splitter. Um, I wrote a piece for them on the second half of the WTA season uh, a week ago um, discussing, you know, who's going to be that breakout second-half player akin to what Arena Sabalenka was a year ago and what Sloane Stevens was two years ago. There always seems to be at least one second-half player who, when most of the WTA tour is tired and has a lot of uh, miles on the odometer, Who's that player with relatively fresh legs due to having played rel- due, due to having played few matches in the first half of the season? Someone who really turns on the afterburners and makes makes a huge points haul in that second half and makes her um, a, a name to watch heading into the, the that the following year's Australian Open. So let's see if there's a uh, a parallel to Sabalenka 2018 or Sloan 2017. Well, as always, you provide a perfect transition into what we're going to be talking about today. You man, you mentioned that jump Sabalenka made. She was obviously one of the next-gen WTA stars of 2018 in our conversation today. As I mentioned, ranking the top 10 WTA next-gen seasons in 2019. For our listeners who have listened to the men's version of this and have listened to these podcasts before, they know I get a little bit selfish about my next-gen definition. I consider myself at 23 years old, still rising, still part of that next generation crop of talent, and therefore I refuse to consider anyone my age or younger, uh, you know, above next gen. So for our listeners, we include players born after October 1995, again, for selfish reasons, in uh, all of those players, so under the age of 24, still 23, uh, 23 in a couple of months, eligible for this list. Much like the men, the criteria I used when making my list, you the, to really see who's had the best season statistically, the obvious thing to look at the WTA race to Shenzhen, the year-end finals. That's just straight up who has accumulated the most points in this calendar season. That being an accumulation of titles, finals, semifinals, quarterfinals, premier mandatory Grand Slam results, all of those things. Some other things I use in considering my list, you know, results at the biggest events, the slams, the premier mandatories. Another thing I really like to see: first-round losses. Can you be consistent week in, week out, or is it more flashes of greatness? And then the last arbitrary thing I always say because you have the rankings, but expectations coming into this season, you know, the men's equivalent, obviously, Alex Virev by the stats, one of the three to five best next gen ATP players on the year. But in the context of what we expected from him versus what so many other young guys have been able to do, he obviously gets docked for that. And if you go listen to that episode, which I promise you'll enjoy, you will hear us make the case for that. Um, but Matt, I listed through a bunch of criteria. When you were making your list, was there anything different that you included and which elements of that criteria did you emphasize the most? 
Well, for, for me, it's where you are on your journey. Um, you know, if, if you, if you are 17 or 22 or 27, to me, that makes a really big difference when we can just bean count points, then there's really no purpose in having a real debate, but it, you know, expectations, experience, uh, you know, accumulated battles, mileage, all those things, those are what I use to factor into my calculations. And that's why this is going to be such a fun debate because those sort of things, as much as, you know, we, I, you, as much as me, we both try to use those results from the past to manage our expectations. But you do have preconceived notions of certain players coming to the year. As I mentioned, the way Sabalenka, and, or as you mentioned, ended last season, comes in, wins a title in the opening week of this year. Uh, yeah, that, that really helps her points wise, but she's kind of plateaued. And that's the sort of case we'll be talking about today, holding that again. Against her now, much like the men's exercise, I think the top of the women's exercise is going to be a little bit more boring. It's a little bit uh, obvious who's had the best seasons, given how good the top two players have been. So that's where I want to start this list, and we'll go back and forth, Matt, making our case for each player. Obviously, as we begin to diverge, this conversation will become even more animated. But let's start here. The number one player on your list in 2019 goes to Ash Barty. And I think it's obvious, but just for our listeners, you know, we've talked about her a lot, but make the case. Uh, she's been solid on all three surfaces, uh, you know, notching, she notched a Roland Garros, of course, but also uh, a, a grass title, uh, won the Miami title. So, you know, she's been, and she's been doing it since the start of the year, you know, the quarterfinals in the Australian Open, that was her best major result. And she obviously topped that several months later in Paris. So, Really, the fact that she's carried results across three surfaces, whereas, and we might as well just say it, the number two person on this list, Naomi Osaka, um, you know, she's done well in hard courts, but has yet to translate that form to clay or grass. So Barty is a three-surface player right now. Osaka is a is still just a hard court specialist, and uh, that's the main point of differentiation. Well, if I, I obviously have Naomi Osaka number two as well, and I want to get into the differenti- uh, the difference between the two of their seasons, uh, as you mentioned, the surfaces. But for Ash Barty, she comes into the year ranked number 15. Obviously, now she is number one, number one overall in the race to Shenzhen, number one of the next-gen crop on that list. Again, that's under 24, 4,885 points accumulated, a 39-6 and six record on the year. The most impressive stat, though, when I was going through my list and coming up with with all this she has zero first round losses this year and you know she made uh, I believe round of 16 at Indian Wells so that's maybe two wins there she's got a couple other round of 16 sprinkled in as well so I'm not saying yeah I think it was the Rome round of 16 she lost to Mladenovic Uh, so I'm not and you know she loses to risk round of 16 Wimbledon but that's a little bit different but to show that sort of consistency week in week out that's how you maintain that staying power inside the top 10 inside the top five you add the three titles and the final in sydney on top of it and i mean that's how you craft a number one season not only amongst the next gen crew but just the best season on the wta tour which i don't think it's an overstatement to say she's been the number one player regardless of age this season absolutely i would add that the main detail i'd add to that alex is simply that on clay she did the opposite of cratering I mean, we, we know that she's very comfortable on grass, and obviously she's she's very, very comfortable on hard courts where she can get a very reliable bounce. 
But Clay is a surface where, you know, she in the past has been open about saying, you know, wasn't her cup of tea. And yet not only did she uh, not have terrible tournaments on Clay, I mean, she did fairly well in Madrid. Uh, she, you know, she toughed out some early round matches there in that tournament that a few years ago she probably wouldn't have won. But then, of course, you know, she went all the way in Paris. So the fact that on her quote unquote worst surface, you know, she was extremely good and won her first major uh, that tells me something extra about Ash Barty and, and, and the really good place she's in right now. And you look at the six losses. The She loses uh, to Kvitova in the final Sydney. That's fine. You lose to Halep in Madrid. Fine. Kvitova, Australian Open again. Fine. Really just the Risk and Mladenovic matches, the only ones maybe you could have any sort of qualm with. But again, we remember how well Ali Risk was playing in that Australian Open round of 16 match. Yeah, I think she's the clear number one, and I know we zoom through Barty kind of fast, but I think the case for her is pretty obvious. Can you get back into why, you know, not only you have Barty, I, or I guess start with why you have Barty number one over Osaka. Is it as simple as the, you know, across surfaces, Barty's just been that much better? Yep, that really is it. I mean, Barty has delivered the goods in on three surfaces, and Osaka is so clearly a fish out of water uh, on, on clay and grass. I mean, that that's just an overwhelming point of differentiation. So, you know, as we consider who is the WTA player of the year, I mean, you know, Osaka, if Osaka wins the U.S. Open and Barty loses in the round of 16, you know, that could swing it back toward Naomi. But, uh, you know, if they make the same round or a similar round, um, then, you know, a, a Barty would probably still deserve to hold on to that honor, um, just given the, the substantial rise that she's made, uh, whereas Osaka entered 2019, you know, already being on top, uh, you know, at the, the very top tier. So, uh, you know, something dramatic, there would need to be a dramatic differentiation in favor of Osaka in New York uh, for, for this to change in terms of the top two uh, WTA players of the year. This is where expectations come into play, right? I mean, the case for Barty, number one overall in the year makes itself, but the fact that we hadn't seen her make that sort of jump where, versus Naomi Osaka, who comes into the season ranked number four, wins the Australian Open right off the bat, makes the finals in Sydney, losing to Kvitova, semifinals in Brisbane, losing to Tsarenko, you know, reaches number one in the world, uh, does all of the thing, all of the check marks you have to have when you're ascending your way up the ranks. Rankings. And then, yeah, as you mentioned, she's sort of plateaued uh, since that hot start. 22-8 and eight overall in the year, number six overall in terms of the race to Shenzhen, number two of the next-gen WTA crew. Uh, she, look, she's been good. She's got, uh, again, the title at the Australian Open, the final in Sydney, semifinals in Brisbane and Stuttgart, quarterfinals in Rome and Madrid, only two first-round or first-match losses to her credit. And I guess... Had Naomi Osaka not started off the year so hot, reached number one in the world, would you say we would be looking at her season and saying, you know, this is a very successful season from what is a 21-year-old player? Well, you know, the, the fact that she won the U.S. Open really, you know, created the the expectations for 2019. So, uh, I, I, you know... If if you were to look at 2019 in isolation, um, you you could potentially say that yes, is it's a decent season, all things considered, viewed on its own terms. But 
you know, once she won the U.S. Open, she we all saw, we all knew that she entered a totally different uh, realm of reality. And not just the fact that she won the U.S. Open, but that, A, she lost only one set in the whole tournament, and, B, that she beat Serena so convincingly and in such a poised way. Uh, that, that was just a remarkable breakout tournament. So any any uh, subsequent hypotheticals you know, really were tossed aside as soon as she forged that feat at the National Tennis Center. And that's really the thing is to to win the U.S. Open, win the Australian Open back-to-back, and then go, you know, third-round French Open, first-round Wimbledon. I guess if you remove Putin Seva from the equation, Naomi Osaka, maybe she's looking even better on this list than she does right now. But I guess heading into the home stretch, what would you like to see from Naomi Osaka to have it be a successful, you know, second year of ascendance from her? Is there certain things you need to see her accomplish on the hard courts? For me, I would say, you know, round of 16 quarterfinals at one, if not hopefully both, of uh, the Canada and then Cincinnati premier events, and then hopefully round of 16 U.S. Open. To me, that's still a very successful season to her. Uh, for her, do you think I have the bar too low? Would you set the bar a little bit higher? What do you want to see from her down the home stretch? Well, I don't. I personally don't assign a whole lot of weight to Canada and Cincinnati. The, the main thing, in, in a much bigger WTA context, Alex, is that you know we're we're heading into the U.S. Open with. Uh, 12 different women having made the semifinals at majors in 2019 through Wimbledon. So are we going to get four new semifinalists in New York, which would mean 16 semifinal berths occupied by 16 different women. So uh, really in, in one of the points of different differentiation in the race for my own, you know, WTA player of the year is one person going to make a second semifinal. So Osaka, Halep, Kvitova, um, you know, will, will one Barty will one of these players make that second major semifinal? That more than anything which happens in Canada or Cincinnati is going to really separate someone. Assuming that if there's only one, now maybe two or even three or all four will will make the semis in New York. But if we if we are to assume that only one does, that's going to be a big point of separation. So. Uh, I wouldn't expect Osaka to, you know, ha- like she has to win the U.S. Open. I would not put that on her, not at her age. But I do think that making a semi in the at the U.S. Open would really show me that, okay, she's here to stay. She's here to stay in general, and especially she's here to stay on hard courts. And we have to keep in mind that, you know, right now, the next several months of tennis, all the way through March of 2020, hard courts, so, so, so Osaka now is back on her turf, and so this is a time for her to to reassert herself. And you know, the the flip side with Osaka, and and the point of concern here, if she doesn't do anything at either Canada or Cincinnati or the U.S. Open, what's everybody going to be saying? The coaching change. You know, she 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 made the coaching change, and it's been a total disaster. So, if nothing else, she needs to ring up a solid result in at least one of the next three big tournaments, but especially the U.S. Open, so that she can quiet all the, the talk and the alarmism about the coaching change uh, you know, be, being a horrible event for her. That's the thing that she needs to silence. She doesn't have to win the U.S. Open to do that, but I think a semifinal would, would do quite a lot to, to, to tamp down that particular line of, uh, of concern. 
so much to me about the summer hardcourt season is just survival. What do you have left in the tank? How much tennis, you know, how much are you able to give physically, mentally on the court? And for Naomi Osaka to be 21 years old and sitting at only 30 total matches through this point of the season, she doesn't have that much wear and tear. As you mentioned, hardcourt's being her best surface thus far in her career. She is very well positioned to make that sort of, you know, second ascendancy to remind everyone, you know, hardcourt season, my time of the year, that I would say as good as Barty has been, as you mentioned, in terms of that race for player of the year, or, you know, if we come back and do this in the December next-gen WTA season of the year, there is still enough time, enough tennis, enough upside left for Osaka to, I guess, sort of uh, close the gap with Barty. Is that fair? Absolutely. No question about it. All right. I like it. Well, then, with that being said, the agreement's out of the window. Uh, We talked a little bit beforehand. Much like with Rothman, we did not share lists. Uh, I told him, and I'll tell you, I have this thing. If I'm going to make a list, my list has to have integrity. You know, I'm not not half in this. I'm going all the way in. And so that being said, I think this is where uh, you and I will certainly sort of – begin to part ways a little bit we'll start with you your number three season from a next-gen WTA player in 2019 goes to Marketa Vandrushova so we do have our first disagreement and not by much I have Vandrushova number four but for our listeners make the case for why she's number three you know, when uh, with Belinda Bencic uh, scuffling at the major tournaments and kind of uh, offering a Zverev-like vibe uh, we have Andrusova being able to make it all the way to a Roland Garros final. And uh, not only did she do that, but she lifted herself through tough situations. I mean, she came back from five, three deficits in separate sets three times in the quarters against Martic and then against Kanta in the semifinals. I mean, she was down five, three in a set in three of the four sets that she won in those two matches. So, not only has she won, but she's prevailed against quality opposition, against opponents playing well, and uh, and in adverse uh, scoreboard circumstances. So for her to do that, and that was all before she turned 20 uh, in late June. So she did that as a as still as a 19-year-old uh, th- to me, and and she did plenty of heavy lifting earlier in the season. She beat Simona Halep twice, once on hard courts in Indian Wells. Uh, then uh, later in the clay season. Uh, so even though Benchich had that amazing February run and has lifted herself a, 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 a many notches in the rankings, uh, the, the fact that Vandersheva played her best tennis at a major tournament uh, and, and has several other significant results and individual match wins to back it up, that puts Vandersheva over Benchich slightly for me. So I apologize. I lied to you. Vondrusova, number five at my list, but it'll make more sense in a second. For my list, there were a couple of different tiers in terms of what where these types of player seasons fall in. Barty Osaka, obviously in a tier of themselves. Not only were they Grand Slam champions, both reached number one uh, in the WTA singles rankings this season. Obvious case for the top two. We just litigated that. My next three players, and I'm not going to tell you the order right now, but Marketa Vondrusova, uh, Belinda Bencic, and I threw Bianca and Drescu in this group. 
uh, it was very difficult for me, you know, splitting hairs in terms of who goes and what number, and I rearranged it a bunch of times. Starting with Von Drusova, you mentioned that French Open final, but just for our listeners, she starts the year at number 67, has jumped up to number 16, number 9 overall in the race to Shenzhen, 4 of the next-gen WTA crew, 29-9 and nine overall in the year. You mentioned uh, that French Open final, two other finals in Budapest and in Istanbul for her. She also makes the quarterfinals in Indian Wells, in Miami, in Rome. Only one first round or first match loss on the year. That was to Madison Bringle at Wimbledon. So in terms of week-in, week-out consistency, she has knocked off all of those, I guess, check marks. The thing that I kept coming back to, and this is not meant to be disrespectful to Von Drusova, but outside of that run, I suppose, uh, to the French Open. She's been, you know, that run in the French Open, she had some great wins along the way. She's been great. But for Andrescu and Bencic, I just thought their best streaks were that much better. And I guess that's why, to to sort of begin uh, arguing, I have Belinda Bencic number three. It seems like you, you kind of were aware of that. Her run to the Dubai title where she beat Sabalenka, Halops, Fidelina, and Kvitova in four back-to-back three-set matches, that may have been the best streak of tennis of any of these next-gen WTA players on the list. Uh, you know, I would not argue with that, especially when you consider the how many seeded players uh, at both Roland Garros and Wimbledon bit the dust early, you know, and how much the uh, that top half of the Wimbledon draw uh, you know, which supposedly was going to have Serena and Kerber and Barty and Bencic, you know, it crumbled. So you didn't have a lot of top 10, top 15 matchups. So as far as it goes, that analysis is correct. And and I think that we can really just deal with this conversation about players three through five right now, Alex, uh, you know, in terms of single weeks or single uh, fortnights, you know, Bencic, Bencic in Dubai had the best week. Andrescu in Indian Wells had the best fortnight, the best two-week uh, run at a specific uh, tournament. Um, you could you could you could put perhaps Osaka's Australian Open, but Osaka, you know, wobbled really in the first week of Australia. So I mean, and, and you could I think that Andrescu's Indian Wells really was the best two-week stretch of tennis. Uh, all things adjusted for circumstances and experience and expectations. Um, I, I, you know, when you when you make when you grade on a curve, I think Andrescu's Indian Wells was the best two week stretch. But so I, I'm not ready to elevate those soaring sequences uh, above Von Drusheva's overall body of work. I think that Von Drusheva's overall body of work has a little more consistency and a little more durability. I mean, especially with Andrescu's Indian Wells. It was the best two weeks of tennis from any WTA next-gen player uh, this year, but at what cost? You know, she busted her shoulder, and she's still recovering from that. She had to pull out of Washington. Um, You know, hopefully she'll be ready for Canada, which I think really was always her main focus uh, as soon as, uh, you know, she left Miami and and, uh, her, her team, which made a horrible mistake. It's the worst mistake made by any tennis any, any individual tennis player's team uh, in 2019, um, as soon as that Miami situation sank in, uh, I think that Andrescu wanted to be ready for Canada. So we'll see what, what she's ready for. But the, the, the fact that Indian Wells and that amazing championship came at such a cost, to me, that elevates Vandrusheva uh, and also Bencic over Andrescu because 
you know, let's let's look at this through a Rafael Nadal type prism. And I know that Nadal has transcended all of his injuries. He's transcended all of his problems. But, you know, when we get into that really complicated GOAT debate uh, about all the tournaments that Nadal has missed, you know, do we do we view that as, you know, it's just kind of unfortunate that he wasn't able to play all those other major tournaments. And obviously, to an extent, that's undeniably true. But let's not pretend that his playing style and his approach didn't also have something to do with it. So in other words, Alex, to me, if you if you play amazing tennis, but you run yourself into the ground while doing it, I'm going to elevate the player who puts up similar results, but without that kind of strain, because it is a choice. It is not some accident. It is a choice. It is something that you enter into as a tennis player. You do have to find a way not only to win matches and tournaments, but to carry yourself through a full season. So Andrescu absolutely cooking her shoulder. You know, I'm going to subtract a few points for that, not because the tennis was any less brilliant or amazing from her. She was extraordinary at Indian Wells. But you do. There is something that has to be said for uh, creating a durable playing style and being able to carry your body not just through a tournament, not just through a surface-specific swing, but through a whole season. To me, that matters in how we grade and evaluate tennis players. I think that's completely fair. And to stick with Andrescu for a second, who comes in number four on my list, uh, again, for you listeners keeping track, I had Bencic number three, uh, Andrescu number four, Vondrasova number five. And I think when you when you start to break it down for Andrescu, you look at her stats. She starts the year ranked number 107, currently at number 24, 13 overall in the race to Shenzhen, number five of the next-gen WTA players. But she is 32 and 5 on the year. She enters tournament this season. You know, she is likely to do well at it. Now, you know, she wins in Newport Beach, not the not the hardest of draw, a win over Pinkula in the final. She wins Indian Wells, beats Kerber in the end there. Beats Kerber again the next week in Miami, which physically, given what we know about Andrescu, what she's been struggling with, that she was able to do that in an extremely impressive follow-up to her first uh, Premier Mandatory title. Obviously, she makes the final in Auckland as well, going through qualies, loses semifinals in Acapulco to Ken, and yes, the, the second round Australian Open Roland Garros, not, bad, uh, not the best, but again, when she's played, she has been a top five player on the WTA tour this season. And I think that sort of excellent, that flash of greatness, that's why I propel her over Vondrosova, who, again, week in, week out, has been more consistent. But I guess for me personally, I did not expect this level of dominance from Andrescu. You know, I thought if she'd stayed healthy, she could crack into the top 50, maybe the top 30. But this uh, this level of play... Just because it was, I don't want to say it was unexpected, but just because of how good it's been, I value that more. And that's why I propelled her a little bit over Vondrasova. Do you think that's fair? That's absolutely fair. You know, these are, these are matters of taste. You know, these are matters of preferences. You know, these are not um, two plus two equals four types of arguments. I mean, these are very specific angles that we're both coming from and they're both about, and you know, Tennis Twitter and really, you know, any kind of Twitter. I mean, p- politics Twitter especially. 
we really get it's easy to get into your own intellectual silo and and think that you know if if you're if you the person who's arguing with me are not in that same intellectual silo your argument is somehow less valid less reasonable less legitimate we need to get past that so we we're, we're you and I are occupying different intellectual silos but we are both articulating the vision of our intellectual silos reasonably i mean you 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 made your point as well as it possibly could have been made. So I uh, want to affirm that for our listeners here that we disagree, but you're making your argument the right way. Well, I was going to say, I, I invite you now routinely. You don't need to butter me up, but I appreciate appreciate it. And one thing to add to the Andrescu, zero first-round, first-match losses. That's a little thing, but that me again, she showed up. She She's there to play. She wins at least a match, and that means something. But you kind of made the case for Von Drusova, uh, who, again, uh, the, a great case for her. She's beaten Halep twice this season. Not easy to do that. She's beaten Striskova three times, Kastakina twice, Ostapenko twice. Merton, Sevastova, Suarez, Navarro, uh, only one first-round loss for her again at Brangle Wimbledon. So I, I completely understand your argument. Just to round off the uh, on this, uh, I guess, group of three for Belinda Benches because we didn't spend that much time talking about her. I have her number three. Again, that was me cheating uh, off of the Shenzhen race because she's number three of the next-gen WPLA. TA players there, number seven overall, currently ranked number 12 after beginning the year at number 55. But for our listeners who don't remember, she reached as high as number seven in the WTA rankings in 2016. 36 and 14 on the year, two finals, three semifinals, one quarterfinal. Again, those Indian Wells and Madrid semifinals at premier mandatory levels got all of us excited for what we thought she could do at the Grand Slams. You talked about how she fell a little bit short. But again, this gets back to expectations. And for uh, for us who have followed the game closely over these past five years, Belinda Bencic, whether it was in the juniors, whether early on in her career, she's always been someone circled as the next not the next big thing, but one of the next big talents on the WTA tour. And I guess given that she's been able to play a full slate of matches, you know, 50 matches through Wimbledon, I'm, I've just been so encouraged by her upside that she's able to stay on the court that I, I feel like the next best season for Andrescu, you know, what she follows this up with almost looks like what Benchich is doing this season. And that sort of jump to me is significant enough to have her at number three. And that's fair. Uh, my thing with uh, Belinda Bencic is now that Alina Svitolina has finally made her first major semifinal, I mean, Bencic really is the next person up yep. on the WTA tour, make a major semi. You know, that she she ha- she definitely has the game to have that on her resume. It's time. She needs to check that box. And I think then she can move forward with her career and, and consider herself, you know, moving into 2020 as a genuine contender for the biggest tournaments. But until she does that, I mean, she really is the Zverev. She she has now taken the baton from Svitolina as the Zverev of the WTA. You know that that is really her next big goal. So uh, you know when she does that, she will elevate herself in my eyes. But until then, you know there's gonna, there are going to be these questions because you know and, and hey, we, we talked about this a lot, but one more time, Allison Risk, great on grass court. She had a great run. She didn't give up. She battled back against really good players in third from third set deficits at Wimbledon. But nevertheless, if you're Belinda Bencic and you are an elite tennis player and you are a contender for the biggest titles in your sport, you can't let a three-love third set break point up lead slip. 
at Wimbledon. You just can't. So she definitely has a major tournament question to answer, much as Zverev does on the on the ATP. So that is really the thing that she needs to conquer. Uh, ideally at the U.S. Open, and certainly if not then, then at the Australian Open, because you know she, she's not comfortable on clay. So really, she she really needs a major semi in either New York or Melbourne. So that when she gets back to Wimbledon next year, you know, she can she can walk into SW19 and say, this is going to be mine. Well, I, I should let you know right now, you are the Medvedev to my Tsitsipas because throughout this exercise, I was coming together with my list when I was, I have a category for worst losses. And just for our listeners, I'm going to put my list, uh, my top 10, my thinking on our website, crackedrackets.com. Matt, if you want to send me your list so we can put yours up next to mine as well, although I can, I think I have the name saved so I can kind of save that as well, uh, just so our listeners can see these on paper. But for uh, my category, worst losses, all I keep thinking is your article about putting losses in context and for so many of these next-gen WTA players and I guess this is a little bit of a tangent before we get to number six and am I correct in saying your three through five was Bencic, Andreescu, Vondrosova in some order? Uh, well yes and it was Vondrosova at, at three and then uh, uh, Andreescu was Bencic four and Andreescu five. Perfect so we agree on those top five. I guess Yes. Those top five seasons, just a quick tangent, they speak to how high a level some of these next-gen WTA players have reached. And I guess just in comparison to the ATP next-gen version, these WTA players are just a step ahead. Is that fair? Absolutely. I mean, if I have Andrescu at five exactly. and she exactly. won and she won Indian Wells, well, yeah, that 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 talks about the high standard and that... Uh, and that Benchich, you know, with the very productive forward-moving year that she's had, and she's only four, you know, again, another testament to just how much achievement there is in this top five. I completely agree with you. But with the top five in the books, now we're going to start to have a lot of fun. Now it really is going to come down to what you uh, what you and I value personally more than the rest. A lot of the cases from here get thinner and thinner. So listeners, again, if you have disagreements, feel free to tweet at us. Let us know. But Matt, your number six player goes to? Amanda Anasim. Very interesting. So I have her number seven, um, but I'm, I want to let you go first. Give the case for why you have her number six. Um, so it's it's a lot like Von Vrusheva, just uh, kind of on a smaller scale in that she has a big-time result, uh, a, a Roland Garros semifinal, and she cleaned Arena Sabalenka's clock twice in two of the statement wins among younger WTA players. I mean, the, the win – in Australia, it was impressive because it was a wow moment. You know, people were expecting Sabalenka at that Australian Open to, to do big things. I mean, I, I certainly was. So um, it was – you remember the, the scene in The Natural where uh, the woman, you know, played by Barbara Hershey, she's looking at the Babe Ruth character, the whammer, and then Roy Hobbs strikes him out on three pitches. So she's looking at the slugger, and then when she, after that third strike – the slow motion scene shows her slowly turning to the the younger the, the pitcher, uh, the golden haired pitcher. So she's she was always focused on the one, and then she realizes that the other one is the person who had the lightning and the thunder all along. So <laughs> that's really what that's really the Anasimova Sabalenka story in 2019. So- that we it entered with Sabalenka being the bee's knees, being the person who might develop 
you know, the next golden WTA rivalry with Osaka for the next 10 years. I mean, I, I wrote about that at tennis with an accent late last year and, and before the Australian open, you know, is this going to be the next classic rivalry? And then poof, Ana Samova just steals Sabalenka's thunder and then she backs it up at Roland Garros. So doing that twice to Sabalenka and the Roland Garros semifinal, uh, that you know, and, and for Anna Samova to do this, she also beat Simona Halep at Roland Garros in a quarterfinal. Can't forget that from the whole picture. And she's not even 18. So relative to expectations, which again is part of my weighted, adjusted, you know, personalized uh uh, basis for these rankings, I would put Ana Samova's uh, to the first half of 2019 above Mertens uh, and and Kennan and some of the other players we're going to discuss in a few moments. Well, just for our listeners, The Natural, a movie from 1984 from uh, Barry Levinson and crew. Uh, for the record, given that it's a next-gen pod, uh, the youngest player would have been negative 12 years old to have watched said movie. Uh, so, no, I don't get the reference, but I appreciate a good— If, if you want to go, you know, Dodgeball or Coach Carter or, you know, uh, any Friday Night Lights variation, now, now you're talking my language. Now this is this is a tennis podcast, but of course tennis. Last time I checked, is a sport. So this is a sports podcast. <laughs> if you are a sports fan and you haven't watched The Natural, you need to watch it. It is a it, it's like one of the cla- it's one of the classic sports movies of all time. So my uncle's a big Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and I've watched the movie with him, and I get it. Sean Penn's funny. He's the laid-back high school. But I'm like, do you know how painful this is for me? Do you, do you see these cameras? I could do this on my phone. <laughs> and it's, I'm not trying to be disrespectful because there are classic. There's, there are certainly movies sure. that age. You know, I'll watch, and this isn't even as old, but I'd watch A Few Good Men every time it's on AMC. I do. I watch, you know, uh, you can't handle the truth. Or, I doctored the law. Colonel Jessup, did you order, you know, on and on and on but the natural a little bit beyond my index well you can you can rectify that soon enough <laughs> exactly i have homework for the next time um but getting back to nisimova i i agree with the case you made she certainly deserved and would be on any player's top 10 you look at what she's done starts the year ranked number 87 jumps to number 23 wta race to shenzhen she's 15 overall number six of the next gen wta crew so again you have her uh, in line with that so hard to argue anything there 22 and 12 her first title in bogota all wins were over players out Outside the top 100 at the time, uh, Astra Sharma, a former Vanderbilt four-year player who she beat in the final, has since jumped into the top 100, but still not a, cra- a crazy draw there. French Open semifinals, Auckland, Mallorca quarterfinals. But to me, you know, her four first-round losses, not not crazy. Uh, three, uh, two of them in three sets. One of them came in the Rome second-round quality, so I'm cheating a little bit there. But I kind of reverse course here. My numbers, you know, while I agree, Anisimova, the highs, you know, she beats Halep, as you mentioned, in a French Open quarterfinal. She beats Sabalenka twice. The highs have been quite incredible. But for Sophia Kennan, the sort of consistency she has shown week in, week out, number 17 overall in the race to Shenzhen, number 7 of the next gen in that race, 
two titles on the year in Hobart and Mallorca. Just she has been successful on every surface. She's done something of substance ever. She beats Serena third round at the French Open, loses to Barty round of sixteen, uh, loses to Halep at the Australian Open second round in three. Totally excusable. You we both remember that second round match against Yastremka that went three sets at Wimbledon. A great match there. Um, yeah, she hasn't done great at the mandatories, but Sophia Kennan, for me, has taken a jump. She is sort of, in the way Daniil Medvedev last year sort of solidified himself in that top 20 by winning, what was, I think, three ATP 250s, two to round out the year. That's exactly what Sophia Kennan has done uh, throughout 2019 thus far. Sort of say, you know, I am going to be a presence in this top 30 week in, week out in my game. It's not going to vary too much. I'm just going to be a tough out. And while... The the upside for Anisimova is undeniable, and I kind of argued for Andrescu in terms of upside a little bit earlier. I just I value what Kennan has done week in, week out so much that I just have her slightly above Anisimova at number six. Well, and it's another case of we have we occupy different intellectual silos. <laughs> we switch sides this time. It's kind of funny. You're making you're making the case as well as you can. Um, there's no question that Kennan has been the more consistent, um, and, and that you know Anasimova's highs have simply been. Kennan has not had the the pronounced lows that Anasimova has had. But so to me, the tiebreaker and what is a very legitimately close call is that Anasimova's three years younger. She's yeah. doing this three years younger. You know that that to me makes her season more notable, not by a ton but it's enough to, to, to put her just a, a notch ahead. My counter to that would be, wouldn't you say expectations on Kennan, given the jump she had? Uh, I did a next-gen uh, State of the Union, or uh, uh, American Women's Tennis State of the Union at the end of last season with Jonathan Kelly. I had Kennan, I think, number three or four on my list because she did make big breakthroughs last season as well. But for her to have those sort of expectations, knowing how difficult it is to make that next jump, um, I just I just feel like to do that is sort of harder than Amanda Nisimova, who, I mean, you watch her matches. She's coming out swinging at all times, and obviously that's something that's going to translate well for her throughout her career. But it just feels like Kennan, with a little bit more pressure on her this season, has really delivered. Yep, I, I think that's fair. That that Anisimova is playing with a lot more house money, and Kennan, you know, knew that this year was going to be important and it was going to be a battle, and she's held up really well. I, I have to agree with that. Yeah, and uh, to to your case, Anisimova only four first round or first match losses. The one in qualities, as I mentioned, uh, if I included Fed Cup losses as well, so that gets Kennan up to five. Although her Fed Cup loss was to Barty, but you look at two of her first round losses, Andrescu in Miami, you can write that off, Kvitova in Madrid, again, poor loss, Stozer in Eastbourne, I had that as a scheduling loss because the week before she had won the title in Mallorca, and to play that next week, two days later in the run-up to Wimbledon, I think that's the sort of scheduling decision you look back and you say, this was a poor decision, you know, we have to improve that because it's the little things to get better for next year. But yeah, those two Americans... I mean, as good as Coco Goff has been, I, I don't have Coco Goff on my list. Uh, I, I'm not sure do, if you do, Matt, but I think these two young Americans have been even more so maybe than Sloan and Madison, uh, the two most impressive thus far in 2019. I would agree that they are the two most impressive uh, players, but that also is a commentary on how low the bar has been set by Madison Keys and Sloan Stevens and how much they've left on the table. So it's 
Samova and Kennan have soared to this amazing good, but they're the most impressive Americans in part because Keys and Sloan just haven't gone gone through the door and uh, reached the standards that they surely set for themselves. So th- that has to be kept in context. No, I appreciate you saying that. I um, completely agree with you. Again, it seems like because Anisimova is so fresh, her go- – I mean, Coco Goff right now is the superstar, but even more so – it feels like Amanda Nisimova should be the center of attention for the, the Americans in terms of the WTA, what she should be able to do moving forward. As you mentioned, she's 17 years old. Uh, the future is in front of her. You make the case for her number six, number seven, and it's very legitimate no matter what your point of argument is that speaks to how successful she's been. Obviously, the same holds true for Kennan. Um, am I correct in assuming you had Kennan number seven, or did you have someone? Because, again, I had Kennan six. Anisimova seven. Are we getting someone different from you for number seven? No, it is Kennan. So uh, Bardi, Osaka, Vandrushova, Bencic, Andrescu, Anisimova, and then Kennan at seven. Perfect. Well, then number eight from Matt Zemek's list of the top ten next gen WTA seasons in 2019 goes to Elise Mertens. Interesting. So. Much for the men, and I don't know if you listen to this, man. I know you're very busy, but for the men, I had the similar argument of for Chorich, Zverev, and Kachnov of should I include any of the three of them in my top 10? I ended up including Chorich at number 10 over Umbert, over Kesmenovic at the very end. I had a very similar argument uh, in my mind when making this list about both Merten, Sabalinka, and then uh, Annette Contave. I ended up not including any of the three of them, so I am curious to hear your case of why you have Mertens number eight. Okay, and by the way, there, uh, there's a Belgian person on tennis Twitter, um, Duck the Black Swan is his, uh, is his uh, Twitter <laughs> handle, and uh, he tells me that it's Mertens and Kiki Bertens. Mertens and Bertens, perfect. Yeah, yeah, so just... just passing that along um but so i think that mertens gets in on the strength of her doha win that 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 was a very impressive performance she beat a pile of really good players to get there it was kind of like a benchich light uh you know benchich in dubai mertens in doha was almost as good so to me that carries some weight and then the other reason i have mertens at eight is that compare her to 9 10 and what's what else is left on the list i just don't think there's as much uh accomplishment and achievement uh on the board so I, and it, that's it's partly because it's partly just because a lack of uh, similarly strong alternatives I completely agree with you. That's when expectations for me really start to come into play. Plus, I need to have some spicy takes for you at the end of this list. But getting back to the trio, because I judge them all uh, not in unison, but kind of against one another. For Mertens, who comes in uh, to this year, ranked number 12. She's currently number 20. Number 20 overall in the ranked uh, race to Shenzhen, but number 7 of the next-gen WTA crew. 22-18 and 18 on the year. For Sabalenka, she started the year number 11, now number 10. 29th overall in the race to Shenzhen, number 12 of the next-gen WTA crew. Conteve started the year ranked 20, now number 19. 23 overall in the race to Shenzhen, number 10 overall of the next-gen WTA crew. The thing for all of them, you look at their seasons, and it's really just 
Meh. Like, nothing to write home about. For Mertens, the reason I ultimately kicked her off my list, nine first-round or first-match losses. I know three of them in three sets. Uh, but uh, Or, sorry, seven if you don't include Fed Cup, but she lost both of her Fed Cup matches to Cornet and Garcia. That's just unacceptable. Uh, you cannot have that sort of streak of tennis when you come into the year ranked number 12, having done what Elise Mertens has done. Now, as you mentioned, in Doha, to beat Halep, Kerber, and Bertens back to back to back, that is as good of a run as, you know, any of, the, or almost as good of the run as any of our players in the top five. Certainly better, with all due respect, than things Kenan and Anisimova have done, maybe in individual tournament runs. But I just expected more from her, and this season was too blah for me that other players I have valued up. So I'll get into it. My number eight player, uh, Diana Yastremska, I I just think the jump she made this year from number 59 to number 34, getting those two titles, has been more impressive to me than anything Mertens has done. That's fair, and and Yastremska does make my top 10 precisely for that reason, that relative to expectations, relative to experience— you know, she has achieved significantly. I mean, you know, now on an absolute level, you, you might, it, it's harder to be a, as generous, but compared to what is left uh, on this list among the eligible players, I, I think she certainly makes the top 10 cut for, for the reasons you've cited. So I want to get into uh, her and where you have her on your list. But before that, I'm going to run through these players real quick because uh, you sort of made the case for Mertens, uh, that Doe run quarterfinals in Sydney. Rabat, Mallorca, third round Australian Open loses to Keys, third round French Open loses to Sevastova, round of 16 Wimbledon loses to Stritskova. So again, in terms of consistency at the big events, that's not that bad. That's still a pretty impressive run from her. Uh, But so you you made the case for her number eight. Do you have any of, and these are the players who are numbers, I believe, seven through 11 in terms of the race to Shenzhen. Number eight, Donna Vekic. Number nine, Elise Mertens. Number 10, Annette Conteve. Number 11, Maria Sakari. Number 12, Arna Sabalenka. Do any of them make uh, your top 10? Because to me, that was all the same category of expectations versus what they've done in 2019. Not enough to get into my top 10. Okay, well, Sakari at 24, I wasn't considering her uh, as part as part of uh, the, the eligible. Is she, is she 24? I have her at 23 and nine months. So I'm I'm looking at the uh, live rankings page, live live dash or live hyphen tennis dot eu, and I'm yeah, seeing we, 24. I have her Sakari. Maybe she turned. Oh no way! Guess when Maria Sakari's birthday is. Uh, today, July twenty fifth, nineteen ninety five. So it's technically tomorrow because we are recording this on the twenty fourth. Uh-huh. That is hilarious. That is. <laughs> that's, um, you, that's the benefit of going to a European site as, uh, website instead of an American website. Well, can I say so? I had the the link live tennis eu, the exact same one as you, up on my screen, but I had it f- loaded from earlier in today, and obviously in Greece she is now. Button. Yeah, she is now turned 20. The refresh button saves lives. I'm sorry for swearing, but that is fucking hilarious. That is actually so funny. Um, Okay, so she's out. Throw Sakari out the window. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, 
she's now out of the list. So going back, I'm going to reset the list for you. And oh my god, this throws off everything. Now, um, Vekic, Mertens, Conteve, Sabalenka. Uh, you mentioned Mertens at number eight. Do any of the others crack your top ten? Yeah, so just by process of elimination, uh, it's Beckett, uh, in because Contevate and Sabalenka have had, in my mind, disastrous seasons. Yeah, um, I, I so so Vekic has been here and there, hit or miss. She's had some moments. You know, she still has a problem closing down matches that she really ought to win, but, but she's had some moments where she's busted through that. So there is some progress to point to, but... Boy, Annette Contevate, and yeah, she made the semis in Miami, but what else? What else yeah. has she done this year? She's way too gifted a ball striker to drift through so many important tournaments without making a, a particularly strong impression. And then, of course, Sabalenka has you know, just had a horrible first half, and we'll see if she can re- rediscover her form, which, you know, she came alive in Canada last summer that ignited everything leading to Cincinnati and then uh, New Haven and then the U.S. Open and, and everything that came after that. So we'll see if she gets a new kickstart. But boy, through Wimbledon, it's been just a, a far more um, miserable season, I think, than anyone who follows the WTA expected for Sabalenka. So Contivate and Sabalenka just cannot be on this list under any circumstance. So by process of elimination, it's Vekic at 10 with Yastremska at 9, Mertens 8, Kennan 7, um, Anisimova 6, Andrescu 5, Bencic 4, Bandrushova 3, Osaka 2, and Ash Barty 1. So I, I love it that we have wrapped up. Let me do, give you my last two, and I feel like uh, we did not get— oh, oh, I still have actually three more. We didn't uh, really get to litigate— Diana Yastrzemska, just to quickly go over that for our listeners, she starts the year ranked number 59, now number 34 on the year, 31 overall in the race to Shenzhen, but 13th on the next-gen WTA list, 22 and 13. As I mentioned, she wins titles in Joaquin and Strasbourg, makes the quarterfinal in Hobart in terms of the premier mandatories, two three-set losses to Gavrilova and Pliskova in Indian Wells in Madrid, second round Miami. She makes that third round appearance, Australian Open, uh, first round, three set loss to Suarez Navarro at the French, and then a, th- a round of 16, obviously, at Wimbledon, knocking off Zhang, an incredible result for her. Seven first round losses speaks to the fact she's 19 years old. There still are ups and downs in her play. Uh, but she has done some really impressive seas- uh, things this season. She's knocked off, you know, Suarez, Navarro, Lapko, Mukarutha, Alexandrova, Sabalenka, Garcia, Georgie, Kennan. Uh, just has been very solid, has flashed the sort of upside. Again, I keep using this, but this is now going to probably be the thing I stick to. It was a Daniil Medvedev-esque jump from her that we've seen thus far. And for someone to do that at 19 years old, again, putting in the context, I just think she's an undeniable entrance in this list. Given how, given how bad, not how bad, but how disappointing the Sabalenkas and Conteves of the world have been. Yes, and I just if if we're factoring in adjusted expectations and, and relative experience or lack thereof, you know, teenagers who make a huge splash or at least a significant splash have to be part of this list. I mean, I, we we certainly have not excluded a teenager um, who has made uh, significant results at multiple main tour events. You know, so Coco Goff. 
She made a splash at Wimbledon, one event. That that's that's not enough for a season. And you and I agree on that in terms of putting Coco in, in our top ten. It's just it's just not enough. I mean, obviously the makings of an extraordinary career are there, but you just can't do it based on one tournament. So um, we haven't excluded any teenager uh, who has done something special on several occasions this season to date. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Again, context is key, as as you wrote and as we continue to stress. And you look at the context of her season, it's hard to deny how impressive she's been. But then I have two more players who neither of us have mentioned yet. Again, this is where I deviated a little bit from those race to Shenzhen standings and wanted to have a little fun with you at the end. So I want to see if you think, and again, 9, 10, 11, 12, you're really, it's splitting hairs, so you can make a case for a bunch of players. But my number nine player Carolina Mukova, uh, who on the season starts the year ranked number 141, has jumped to number 46, 35th overall in the race to Shenzhen, 15 uh, in the race to Shenzhen among the next-gen WTA players, 24-9 and on the season. And no, you look at her results uh, She, in terms of the premier mandatories. She didn't play in Madrid, didn't play in Indian Wells, Miami, second round. She loses to Kerber in three, but she does that through qualifying but you look at the jumps she made this season, not only from the ranking standpoint, but just the fact only two first-round match losses on the season, that quarterfinal appearance at Wimbledon where she beats Pliskova, who we talked about in our preview, entered the second week as the favorite probably on the women's side. Uh, that sort of breakthrough from her, I, I just, I, again, because I wasn't impressed with the others, but also because it's a, it's a significant jump to go from ranked number 141 to quarterfinals of Wimbledon, and her other results throughout the season, even though she doesn't have a title, have backed it up. It was enough for me to get her to the number nine spot. No, I mean, a 24-9 record, that, that, is, that is decent, and it's certainly worthy of consideration. And when you have that decent record com- combined with that that memorable win over Pliskova, which, uh, you know, remember Pliskova served for that match twice. And in each of those two return games, um, you know, Pliskova flinched a little, but, but Mukova also delivered the goods. She played two very strong return games to break in each of those instances. So that, that certainly speaks to the caliber of player uh, she is and is still becoming. And if she hadn't played a 13-11 third set, one wonders if she had would have been able to take out Svitolina in the quarterfinal. She led 5-2 in the first set of that match, but as it wore on, um, she got worn down. So um, in many ways, just the length of that match um, you know, mattered for her. So that was kind of a rough break, even though there w- was going to be a 12-12 tiebreaker had that match gone to, a, to, to 12-12. So she's certainly right in the hunt. I, she, if, if this was a top 12 and not a top 10, yeah, Mukova would be on it. Yeah, see, for me, the thing with her versus Vekic, I was just like, Vekic in context, it's been more of the same, and I suppose it's a good thing, but nothing that really jumped out to me. The way Mukova made that Wimbledon quarterfinal, it jumped out to me, and she had done enough other things throughout the year that it seemed legitimate to me in my head to have her at number nine. It sounds like, though, you have no qualms with that? Nope. All right, then. Let's end this list strong. My final player, number three in terms of the next-gen WTA top ten seasons of 2019. This is probably... 
My hottest take of the list, because you look at this player, number 57 overall in the race to Shenzhen, number 20 on the next-gen WTA list in terms of that race. She started the year ranked number 178. She's now up to number 61. 18 years old, 24-12 and 12 on the year, one WTA final in Lugano where she lost to Hercog. I, of course, am talking about Iga Swatik, who is the number 10 player on my list. For her to have this sort of season at 18 years old where she not only gets to play in all the main draws of the slams, Australian Open second round, Wimbledon first round, and then, of course, that French Open fourth round. Uh, but she has, you know, she makes the first final of her career. She has made a jump this season. And again, because we're splitting hairs, that sort of jump from an 18-year-old, it, it, I, it, you know, it gets my attention. Everyone's freaking out because Coco Goff makes Wimbledon fourth round. Well, Swadek did it and made a WTA final this season. Feels like we should be freaking out for her, too. I think that's completely fair. And, you know, at this point, you know, the 10th best WTA next gen season. I mean, no one's closed the door. No one has said, you know, put down a, a resume that says, oh, I have an airtight argument. No, there's no airtight argument. And so that that contextual uh, analysis relative to Sviatek, um, that perfectly reasonable. I don't, I'm not, I'm not, there's no obvious case to make against it in terms of like, you know, it can't be considered or, you know, that's not reasonable or, you know, wow, that's a real reach. I don't think anything is is a particular reach at, at ten, except for Sabalenka. I mean, if you had said Sabalenka, you know, that <laughs> that would have been struck down with fury. But really, you know, the Contevates Miami semifinal, you know, that's kind of a bright shiny diamond. I mean, you could you could find you know one particularly notable event, uh, you know, for most of the players in contention for this tenth and final spot. So Sviatek has an argument to make. Yeah. For Conteve, it's very Shapovalov-esque, right, in the way he made the quarterfinals in the Sunshine Swing and hasn't really done anything else since. Semi, semis. Uh, oh, semis, yeah, excuse me, but it's it's very similar in that way and sort of, you know, they've both had bright spots, so fine. If that, to you, is the most important thing, make your case, uh, but beyond that, not much else. So, yeah, again, to recap my list, uh, I'll go from the top. Number one, Barty. Number two, Osaka. Three, Benchich. Four, and and that's again. I had Benchich three. Matt, Matt had Vondrusova three. I had Andreescu four. Matt had Benchich four. I have Vondrusova five. Matt has Benchich five. I'm Kenan six. Matt is Anisimova six. I'm Anisimova seven. Matt is Kenan seven. Uh, again, for me, Yastremka number eight. I believe you said Mertens number eight. I have Mukova number nine. You have Vekic number nine. Uh, again, again, we I, dis- had, I had I had Vekic ten. Ooh, Vekic. and I had Yastremska nine. Ooh, apologies, Yastremska nine. And I had Andrescu at five. Andrescu at five. Yeah, uh, I think. Oh, I may have messed that up. I had interest before. Yeah, Again, my, sure. yeah. yeah, okay, cool. And then my a lot of names here for you listeners. So my 8, 9, 10, uh, it goes Yastrzemska, Mukova, and Swetik. Uh, and that really rounds out our top 10 ranking. So I wanted to do one more thing before I let you go, though. It's a new segment we've been doing. Uh, kind of, you know, this is the one that gets us in trouble because it's a lot of projection, a lot of conjecture, speculation. But with this group in mind, you know, we've talked so much about their best moments in 2019, but now that we've gotten to see uh, so much of them, just a couple of big takeaways from this group. I guess the first one I want to ask you, the one that I think will stir up the pot the most, I don't think it's unreasonable to say of all the players, you know, that qualify for this list, 24 and under, there are at least 10 of them 
who have displayed this sort of level, and I'm not saying multiple grand slams, but you could convince me that they're gonna they could show that level where they get hot for two weeks and they could win a grand slam. Am I being crazy if I, but you know by saying that number ten is that way too high, or am I right to be you know that excited about this WTA next gen crew? Well, it's it's in, first off, it's entirely reasonable. But the larger point to make is that the WTA right now is a place where pretty much anyone can get hot for two weeks and win a major. I mean that that is what we have seen in 2019. You know that not only can can players get hot, but it's always someone different. You know, there's just not any carryover any turnover from one major to the next where uh, one player is able to once again play in the latter stages you know so 12 three major tournaments 12 different semifinalists it's it's not it's uh it's not just that a player you know gets hot for two weeks but then doesn't get hot the next major it's a completely different crop of players let's remind ourselves that of the eight 2018 Wimbledon quarterfinalists, only one of those eight returned to the quarterfinals next year, and that was 37-year-old Serena Williams. So, uh, you know, the idea that a number 35 player will win the U.S. Open based on everything we've seen in 2019, that is hardly an unreasonable prediction to make. You know, it is perfectly valid to, to, to just pick a name out of the hat somewhere in the top 50 and say hey here's here's your 2019 u.s open champion until the wta shows at least to a slight extent that players can return to major semifinals from one tournament to the next um it's going to be the wild wild west and so on that basis alone we can pick some of these next gen players i mean and and say that they're going to win a major let's remind ourselves that had anisimova not lost that three love uh, lead in the second set against Ash Barty, already up a set, we would have had a teenage major champion. It would have been 17-year-old Anisimova against 19-year-old Vondrosheva. Uh, so we almost had an all-teenage final in Paris. The idea that this can't happen in the U.S. Open, yeah, later in the year, more mileage, more strain. Usually you'll see the more proven, tested players win but of course this was where Naomi Osaka broke through uh last year on the major tournament stage so it's not as though that that thesis that veteran players uh do the best at the U.S. Open and it's not as though it held up last year uh so really that your your basic argument that all 10 of those players can win a major it holds up if only because the the WTA is just that kind of place right now I, I completely agree with you. Again, that was the most fun part for me of doing this exercise was seeing just how many good names there were. Again, there were some other players you really could have made a case for. Uh, we mentioned Coco Goff, but Kuzmova, Kudermatova, uh, a little younger down the list, but Katie McNally's, the Whitney Osigways of the world. They're, they're all coming, and that's why it's such a fun time to watch the next-gen WTA. Let's have a little more fun. Five years from now, ah... Uh... Yeah, I'm, I'm going to make you put it on paper. Five years from now, name the players of the crop that we named today, Osaka and Barty excluded, that you believe will have a Grand Slam title. I'll, I'll name the ones as well. I, I'll even go first if, if that would uh, would help grease the skids. I would say, 
Oh, five years from now, I just don't see how Belinda Bencic, I think Andreescu gets healthy. I don't see how the two of them, just given what we've seen in t- from flashes, don't have a Grand Slam title. I think Amanda Nismova is going to be really, really, really good five years from now. That sort of firepower, I could see her having one. Oh, man. I think that's what I'm going to go with. I'll go with those five. Well, I, I, I'm definitely on board with Anna Samova, given that, given her power, but also that you know she's been able to play without too much strain. And yes, I think I also have to think that in five years that Benchich would eventually figure out the path to a major. Uh, after that, it gets really murky because um, you know Andrescu's shoulder is such a big, blaring question mark, and I really hope that that hasn't been mismanaged to the point that you know it becomes a, a huge albatross for her but i kind of fear that that might be the case so i'm really i'm not gonna i'm not ready to include her in that conversation until i not only see her get healthier but but stay healthy so that's just it's just not something we're gonna know for a while um mertens probably has the moxie to to find a tournament where the draw breaks well for her so i so i'd put her uh, in that part of the mix, I think yet Yastremska's ability to hit bigger when the points matter. You know, if you if you watch that Yastremska Kennan match at Wimbledon, Yastremska was fearless in crunch time situations on really big points. So that that should translate well for her at a major. And uh, so let's see, one spot left. Uh, I think that if I'm going to put Yastrzemska in there, I think I can put Kennan in there as well. That she fights oh, wow. so well, she fights so well. She she takes after Sharapova that way. That's probably going to lead to a major at some point in the next five years. If if you know, I really have to answer this question. <laughs> well, I appreciate that you did. One other dark horse I'm going to throw in there: Whitney Osigwe, who again, this is an opportunity to shame the correct interviews I did with her, but the former world junior number one, junior French Open champion. She's around like 106 right now in the world has played a really good world team tennis season for whatever that's worth. But again, I watch a lot of tennis, so it's something I noticed. But again, this whole conversation speaks to how healthy and uh, how much potential this crop of next-gen WTA talent has. Uh, I'll let you throw in the final word on this. Any final uh, general thoughts on the 2019 WTA next-gen season? I know you're not calling them the next-gen players, so obviously you feel a little better. Yeah, no, this no alcohol needed for this next gen. Um, the the main point to take away is that the the WTA is so fluid that what appears to be a path toward major tournament success right now it could look very different uh, it, very quickly. And, and and the the instructive example there is Sabalenka, that her her rise looked so pronounced and it looked so sustainable. You know, Sabalenka was playing with such margin in that second half of the 2018 season. It didn't seem as though this was a player who was playing way above her head. It seemed contained. It seemed something that she could replicate. I mean, she she was replicating it. She won a stacks of three-set matches. I mean, she is is physically cut. She is strong. She's muscular. This looked like an athlete who had found the the right way to play tennis but had the athleticism to really put together a lot of wins again and again and again. And here we are, and she's, you know, had uh, nothing to show for the first seven months of 2019. So it does show how quickly the landscape 
changes. So that's the cautionary note to add to all this, that, that, you know, the, the WTA is so fluid and it's so volatile that we, we could be sitting here in, you know, after Indian Wells in Miami in 2020 and we could have a completely different situation. Hopefully the two of us will be on a podcast on that day doing just that thing because, uh, again, there's nothing I look forward to more than these conversations. I feel really good. I feel like like now, and I hope our listeners feel the same way, we covered a lot there. I feel like I have a thorough progress report, a thorough State of the Union, and you know we talked politics a lot, the thorough State of the Union on the next-gen WTA players, and the State of the Union, pretty, you know, we'll quote Novak Djokovic here, Westoff, throwing the sound effect, not too bad. Not too bad. So with that being said, Matt, uh, again, I, I want to thank uh, you for taking the time to do this. I want to thank uh, just, you know, uh, Westoff and Fligner eventually for all they do. But give our listeners one last chance. Where they, can they find your work? What will you be up to these next couple of weeks? So we're at TennisAccent.com. And, uh, you know, we're, we're not going to put up too much content right now because people need to, you know, re- decompress a little bit before we get into the meat of the U.S. Open Series, especially when we get to Canada and then Cincinnati. So, you know, we're, we're going to we're gonna go light on it, but, um, you know, I do have that piece up on the U.S. Open extreme heat angle, which, you know, really needs to be dealt with sooner uh, rather than later. Um, and I, I can plug our podcast for the next few weeks. We're going to have Next week, a fan's guide to the U.S. Open from Karen Pestena, uh, who is a Tennis News TPN on Twitter, uh, Tennis Panorama. And then the week after that, and the week after that, we're going to have um, the the Twitter handle is Young Tennis Guns. He is a, a, a tennis historian. He's going to talk about ATP record keeping. You know, because uh, of the uh, ATP decision to give um, Roger Federer four more official ATP match wins from the 2017 and 2018 Labor Cups, and also the recent decision to give Jimmy Connors 18 more wins. You know, hit, the record books had said that he won 1,256 matches, but then this May, those records were changed to 1,274. Um, so so you know, this being the product of how in the 1970s, there was a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty about what was a, an official ATP event and what wasn't. So the ATP went back through the record books and retroactively added 18 wins to Connor's total. So with that, and then with Federer getting four more labor cut wins counted as ATP wins, um, I thought about ATP record keeping being something that's worth noting. And so Young Tennis Guns uh, is going to be the person to talk about that for us uh, in August during Canada Week. Uh, and he's also going to write a companion piece about that. So that, that I'm kind of looking two weeks ahead, uh, but those really are the highlights of what's coming up at Tennis with an Accent at our website, tennisaccent.com, and on Saki Bali's podcast. And again, you guys have had Rajiv Ram, you've had Pat Cash. Not to get you know, not to sound thirsty, but I keep waiting for my invite. Um, December, Alex. <laughs> the next time we have a nice. Pro- That's I what love- December's for. Uh, December is exactly for Alex Gruskin appearances. I agree. No one can kill some December slow time like me, let me tell you. Um, but with that being said, again, all of, all of Matt's excellent contest, 
uh, content, contest and content, tennisaccent.com, the podcast, Tennis with an Accent. Uh, go check that out because it really is outstanding content. Uh, it's just, it, it will get you through your day-to-day fix. And if that doesn't, I know our website, crackrackets.com, will. You know the deal by now. This podcast, the, uh, the mini break podcast, the Cracked Interviews podcast, like, rate, subscribe, review. We've got some really fun news coming up on the podcast front that we've got to hold for a few more weeks, but a little bit of a tease there. We've been uh, develop uh, something's been in the work, let's say, and I've alluded to it before, but it is really about to start to come to fruition in a few weeks. So be on the lookout for that. Um, again, a huge shout out as always to our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, who have a been out any job to do. And you know, rain, shine, snow, heat wave, it doesn't matter. They continue to do the job we ask. But with that being said. For my wonderful co-host, Matt Zemek, who, again, TennisAccent.com for all of his incredible content. For our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westhoff, and for our entire team at Cracked Rackets, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Matt, I know it's your first time on this podcast, but as always, you killed it, and I imagine you'll kill it at the end. What do we tell our listeners? Hey, great shot. Oh, perfect cadence. I'm glad to hear it, and we will hear. Uh, we'll talk to you all soon. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.